The passage today is Second Samuel, the entire chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, Surely, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore... The sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had bore to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. They replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went into his own house and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? 
While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rahab the Ammonite and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I have fought against Rahab and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city, and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Reb, and tacked and captured it. He took the crown from the head of their king. Its weight was a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stones. It was placed on David's head. He took a great quantity of the plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes. And he made them work at brick-making. He did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. This is God's word. Dawn, thank you. Well, let me add my uh, welcome. It'd be great if you can stay for lunch. Always uh, good occasions if uh, you're able to stay. Uh, I don't, William and June, I don't think you can stay, can you? And I, I think this is your last Sunday. Is that right? So if you have a chance to say goodbye to William and June McWhorter before they return back to Australia after a few years here in London, uh, do take advantage of that. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you as ever that you are speaking, God, that you are alive and you speak to us. Whether we are, uh, wherever we are in the world, whether that be London or Australia, thank you that you gather people from all around the world. And it's a great joy to know that even this morning you're speaking to brothers and sisters all around the world. Speak to us. Speak to us individually, collectively we pray, so that we'll be changed and live for the honor of your name. Amen. Uh, We're looking at the life of uh, David in 2 Samuel, particularly this section, chapters 9 to 20 of 2 Samuel, which in many ways, we've said, are the fall, David's fall from uh, the dizzy heights of kingship. Uh, He falls into sin, and uh, as we'll see the story unravel over the next few weeks, really his family unravels a little bit as well, and uh, today's chapter is fairly key in that. If you were here last time, we we saw that um, David had acted despicably. He'd committed adultery with a married woman. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and then murdered her husband in order to try and cover over the crime. He's acted horrifically, miserably, unacceptably. But we left the story at um, chapter 11, verse 27. Even though God is absent from chapter 11, he appears just at the very end. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. So what is God going to do? What would the Lord do with a man who has... Well, he's, who's the king over his people, but commits adultery with a married woman and then murders to cover it up. What will God do to such a man? 
where he pursues him with grace, with kindness. It's, well, it may be a familiar story, but it should still be surprising that God would act in such a way. He pursues him with grace. It is astonishing. And no matter what you've, I don't know the worst of your sins as you sit here this morning, and hopefully you don't know the worst of mine, I do hope not. But whatever they may be, if you're a believer, God pursues you with grace. It is astonishing that he would do so. But he tracks you down. He pursues you. And that's what we're thinking of uh, this morning. It's a wonderful passage for those of us who are sinners, that's us all. Four things, just to keep you on your toes. Four things, we'll, um, we'll work our way through them. It's the pursuit of grace, we'll see. There's realism. There are consequences, certainly, but there's a realism of grace. The repentance of grace, the renewal of grace. Let's work through them. First then, verses 1 to 6, the pursuit of grace. Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, there's a certain... Uh, if, pattern that's developed in in chapter 11. Chapter 11, the Lord is largely absent, but David sends. It's the big verb or word in chapter 11. David constantly sends. So in chapter 11, uh, verse 1, he sends people off to war. Verse 3, he sends messengers. Uh, Verse 4, he's sending people to go and uh, get Bathsheba. Verse 6, he's sending word to Joab. He's just sending, sending, sending. I think it's 11 times in the chapter David sends someone to do something. And the Lord is absent. But now the Lord is back on the the storyline. Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sends. Even that is worth just pausing on. God doesn't give up on Nathan, even though he could. I mean, here's the king who's displayed despicable behavior. But the Lord sends Nathan, not just to punish, but to bring him back. To bring David back, the Lord sends. And there's a certain, I don't know what you'd call it, these first six verses, a shrewdness to the Lord's grace or wisdom, perhaps. Because what does Nathan do when he arrives and sees David? David, the absolute monarch of the realm. And if you're Nathan, you know he's murdered and you're going to go and tell him off. So if you were Nathan, you're feeling a little nervous, perhaps. There's a shrewdness to what goes on. Nathan launches straight into some news uh, in verse 1. It doesn't say it's a parable. We know it's a parable, but Nathan doesn't say that. Presumably, he comes and says, David, I've got to tell you something, and presents it just as, I know, a case that the, the king needs to decide upon. But anyway, Nathan launches into this story. Uh, a judgment's required from the king. So there's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man doesn't get much detail. He just gets verse 2. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man... Poor man gets a lot more detail. The poor man has one beloved lamb, greatly loved. This lamb shares his bed, his food, his cup. A little odd by my reckoning, but um, the point of the story is, of course, he loves this sheep. It's all he's got. He loves this one little sheep, beloved. The rich man, well, um, a traveler comes to visit him, verse 4, but the rich man, he's just too mean. Even though he's incredibly wealthy, he just won't give anything away. So he steals the sheep from the poor man. The one beloved bed-sharing, cup-sharing lamb, like a daughter to this man, he's stolen away. What greed. How unreasonable. 
And verse 5, David rightly burns with anger against the man and said to Nathan, well, here's the verdict of the king. He deserves to die. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Not literally, not by the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law would have said he needs to make a fourfold restitution. So verse 6, that's accurate. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. That's what the law says. But personally, David says, I hate that. That's a meanness and a a despicable selfishness. I'd kill that sort of man. Verse 6, verse 7, you're the man. There's a shrewdness to what Nathan has done there in his grace, in administering God's grace. Nathan could have come uh, right out and said, uh, David, I need a word with you. Yeah, okay. The Lord has told me, David, what you've done with Bathsheba and her husband, and you need to repent. He doesn't do that. And we're not told in the detail why. Presumably that could have created a sort of uh, an aggressive defensiveness from David. Oh, who are you to come in here and tell me what you've done, Nathan? But there's a shrewdness to what Nathan does here. There's a shrewdness to the grace. It persuades David of how deeply unreasonable such action is. Nathan gets under his skin because he's not wanting just judgment, just to denounce what David has done. What he wants is repentance. He wants to persuade David of how wrong he's been. Convince him, come back, David. Come back to your senses. There's not a, initially a judgmental behavior or um, a judgmental approach from Nathan, but one which is designed to elicit confession, repentance. There's a shrewdness to what goes on here. So it's just a little question for us. Is that how we approach people broadly you know someone we know someone's done something wrong maybe in our own household do we desire repentance or do we just want to denounce and say you've done wrong sort it out then nathan he wants repentance he wants reconciliation there's a shrewdness that's what he says don't be surprised in another sense and don't be surprised by the lord's shrewdness in your own life the scenarios he may throw at you in order to bring you to your knees. It may not be a, a blunt confrontation, but there's a shrewdness to God's grace as he pursues. That's how grace pursues. Second thing, then, there's, there's a realism. There's a realism of grace in verses 7 to 14. Now, Nathan is going to pronounce forgiveness upon David, but before we get that, there's, well, there's a charge sheet Nathan is explicit. There's a charge sheet of what David's done wrong, and he'll list the consequences as well. So verse 7, this is what the Lord says. Uh, Verse 7, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and I gave your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. David, the Lord is a giver. But you're a taker, David. I, the Lord, I gave you everything. I would have given you more if you'd asked, but you just took from someone who had very little. And the issue is, essentially, 
verse 9. You despise the word of the Lord, David, by doing what's evil in his eyes. And verse 10. You despise me, says the Lord. David, you see ultimately what the issue is here. The reason you were able to murder and commit adultery is because you, your heart had drifted a long, long way from me. It starts with your attitude to me, David. And once that had drifted, then morally you're all over the place. You do realize what you've done, don't you? David, the king. Rejection of my word, that is, that is sticking two fingers up at me. You've despised me. Strong word, isn't it? You've despised me, David, in what you've done here. Because you've drifted from me. Oh, you, you can get angry over the death of a sheep, can you? How much more angry should I be against by your rejection of me? That's the charge. You've despised me in your behavior. And there are consequences to that. Verse 10, you've used the sword against Uriah the Hittite. Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. You killed with the sword, David. It will now never leave your family. You said that what the rich man should have done is repay fourfold. David, you've killed Uriah. Four of your sons will die. And that's what we'll see happens in the succeeding chapters. Four of your sons, four heirs to the throne, David, will die because of your behavior. There'll be a calamity from this. So verse 11, I'm going to raise up one of your own sons who'll dethrone you. Absalom, we'll see in the next chapters. Absalom, David's son, um, overthrows him. There's a coup. And David, what will happen... um, is uh, verse 11, he'll lie with your wives in broad daylight. Absalom does that on the, on the roof of the palace so everyone can see. There are consequences. The, throw, the sword will not depart. You'll be overthrown as king. There are consequences to your sin, David, because you've modeled this sort of living. You've modeled taking. So your son will do that to you. Verse 13, we'll come back to that in a moment, that there is forgiveness. But verse 14, it more consequences. Because by doing this you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. David, there are, there's going to be forgiveness for you, but there are consequences to your sin. You've made everyone else outside of Israel look upon my name as a joke. I made you my king and you've treated me like this. The son that you just had with Bathsheba, the one that you're cooing over as the little mobile spins round over his cot, the one who's just gurgling and smiling at you, he's going to die. David, there are consequences. Now let me just draw out this, well, I pause on that. Many people will struggle with that. Um, David is forgiven. Sin is taken away. But consequences still remain. Here's the important thing I think of this. Forgiveness for sin and the consequences of sin are different. Forgiveness forgiveness for your sin. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness for sin. But consequences in this life, that's a different matter. They're not the same. 
And it's very important to distinguish between the two. So you see here, David can be forgiven his murder. But look, Uriah's still dead. You can't turn back the clock on that, even though there's forgiveness. David has acted as a sexual predator. Now he can be forgiven that. But his existing children have seen it, and they're going to do the same. They're going to copy their dad in how they treat women. There are consequences for sin, even though there's forgiveness. And I, I guess we get that. You know, obvious cases. Jonathan Aitken, a cabinet minister, remember a few years ago, in some dubious deals with the Saudis, but he perjured himself publicly in courtroom, was exposed, convicted for perjury, and sent to prison. For I can't remember, he only served about seven months in the end, but sent to prison. During his time in prison, he was converted, became a Christian, wonderfully so. He's become a Christian, his sins are forgiven. Does he get to walk out? No. Still has to complete his prison sentence. There are consequences for sin. Eternally, he's forgiven. His relationship with God is wonderful. But there are consequences for his sin. So do you see, it's so important to get this straight. We, we can be forgiven all our sins, all our sins, no matter how bad. But we always live with the consequences. Now, practically, forgiveness of sin is not immediately um, immediately the same as restoration to responsibility. If you had a, an employee working for you in some capacity, an employee, and you know they steal money, they embezzle funds, however they do it, they steal from the safe, whatever the, they steal from the safe. Now, you, this is exposed, you forgive them. Look, I have forgiven you. Do you give them the key to the safe back the next day? You don't do that. You don't do that. They have to, again, demonstrate that they are worthy of having the key to the safe. You can forgive them, but forgiveness and restoration to position are not identical. They're not. They're not quite the same. And if you get this confused, there is a problem. Because some people can look at the consequences of their sin and think, my life is a, is a mess because of what I did. Therefore, the Lord has not forgiven me. That's a mistake. The two are different. So I've had guys say to me, uh, a young man who um, was unfaithful in his marriage became impotent in bed, sexually, and said, is this the Lord's punishment of me? And he'd confessed, he repented, genuinely, and their marriage, was there was reconciliation. But is this the Lord's punishment of me? No. Now look, you are forgiven your sin, but sin has consequences. Your relationship with the Lord is perfect now. You've repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but there are consequences to your sin. You, you live with them. Or I can think of another young bloke who, who before marriage, um, uh, got a woman pregnant, child born, and uh, says, I, I struggle what to, when I look at the child, I'm not sure what God is saying to me. There's a constant reminder of my mistake. Is it, when I look at the child, I, I, I love her, but I look at her. Is the Lord saying, there's a problem between you and me here, son? No. Now, there's forgiveness for sin. His relationship with the Lord was perfectly restored. But there's consequences. There's a child. Happy consequences in some way, but also a child to maintain and complicate it. Now he's married another woman. There are consequences for sin. We can be forgiven all our sin, but there are still consequences. Do you see that? The only point when that changes is when we get to heaven. At that point, 
not only is all sin forgiven, but all negative consequences go as well. But this is a very important distinction. There's a realism to grace. Forgiveness for sin is not the same as the consequences of sin. We still live with that in the here and now. But only then, only in the new creation, then, well then Jesus takes away the bad consequences as well. There's a realism of grace. Let's back up slightly then, verses 13 and 14. Third thing, there's repentance. There's a repentance of grace that uh, grace uh, brings about. Verse 13. David, uh, sorry, Nathan has pronounced this long litany of uh, sin and the consequences. David simply says, verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. Now, I don't... Seems a bit brief, doesn't it, really? I mean, David has, I mean, he has messed up pretty badly. I mean, uh, adultery with a married woman, murder. I mean, uh, you know, it's not just going through a red light, is it? I mean, that, you know, I've sinned against the Lord. That's it. That's it? Come on, David, give us a sort of, give us a wail, give us a public, uh, give us a sort of, um, a ripping, yeah, there we go. Uh, give us a ripping of garments, give us sackcloth and ashes, David. What's going on? That's it? That's it? Well, yes, that's it. And I think that the brevity of it is the point. Because he doesn't caveat. David doesn't say, I've sinned against the Lord. But, um, well, uh, but you need to understand, Nathan, uh, but going on at the time was also, he just says, I've sinned. And I'm certain we're, may, we're meant to make a contrast with David's predecessor as king, Saul. So Saul, the first king of Israel, David the second. Saul rejected the Lord. Samuel the prophet comes to him. And they, and, um, excuse me, Saul is full of excuses. In fact, let's just turn back very briefly, because I think this is such an important point. P- uh, page 286. Just flick back, keep a finger in, won't go there. Long. Page 286, 1 Samuel 15. Context is a little complicated. Um, Saul had disobeyed a specific instruction to destroy all livestock uh, in a certain uh, battle. And Saul, the king, has disobeyed. So chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I'm grieved that I've made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Okay. So Samuel, verse 14, goes to, uh, goes to Saul. What's going on? What's this I hear? What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What's the lowing of cattle? You were meant to have killed all these animals, weren't you, Saul? And then you get, well, verses 15 to verse 24 are just really Saul's excuses. Ten verses before Saul actually says, oh, all right, I'm, I'm guilty. So verse 15, um, um, it was the soldiers uh, that did it, not me, uh, not my fault. Um, but uh, uh, verse 20, but, but I, I did obey the Lord mostly, sort of, kind of. And it's only really when you get down to verse 24, eventually Saul says, I've sinned. I've sinned. Okay, I admit it. Now, I think we're meant to note the contrast between that and David. In 2 Samuel 12, he's confronted with his sin by the prophet and just says, I've sinned. 
No excuses, no caveats. No, but listen, my life has been really stressful. I know, but I was really tired. You just don't know the sort of week I'd had. Yeah, I know I did that, but listen, have you met my wife? Oof, do you know my husband? Oh my goodness, no excuses. She says, I've sinned. I've sinned. I mean, if you do want the longer confession, of course, Psalm 51 is David's record of his confession before the Lord. But here the point is he just confessed. No excuses. And in response, verse 14, excuse me, sorry, the response, end of verse 13, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. That's it. Now, by the Mosaic law of the day, David should have died. Adultery, murder, both both capital punishment for both of them. Should have died for both of them. Verse 13, the Lord has taken away your sin. This is far more than David deserves. Far more kindness than David deserves. Now, what do you make of that? I guess you could look on verse 14 and say... Well, that's just unreasonable. Oh, it's okay for David. David gets forgiveness. That's nice for him. Not so nice for Uriah. He's still dead. So it's all very well David gets forgiven, but Uriah and his family, they're still suffering. So how's that fair? Well, there is a sense in which forgiveness is, by its nature, unfair. It's more than we deserve. It's gracious. It's giving us what we don't deserve beyond that. There's always a cost. There's always a cost of forgiveness, biblically. Someone always pays the cost. Here, verse 14, David's son will die. Gosh. Seems arbitrary. I mean, come back at me if you want the details on that, but... David expects to see his son again in heaven, verse 23. He says, I'll go to be with him in heaven. I'll see him eventually. It's a wonderful encouragement to those who do lose their children young. David is fairly certain he'll see his young child again. So the child has to die, but he'll be there in glory. But there's a, there's a substitute. There's always a cost. Now, I don't want to stretch the biblical pattern or typology too far. But what you get here is what's shown throughout the Bible. Forgiveness comes at the cost of a life. Here, David is forgiven, but it costs David's son. You and I can be forgiven, but ultimately it'll cost God's son. But it's a cost to forgiveness. But grace produces a repentance here. God's grace was accepted, embraced by David's repentance. Now, if you find, if you look at this account of David and think it was a bit easy for him, Really, adultery, murder, that's it? If you find that a little bit easy, well, it's the same for you and for me. If you read the story and think, really, David should pay more personally, well, you're asking the same for yourself. If you don't like how God is kind to David, you don't like grace, really. And there's something in us which doesn't like it. It doesn't seem fair, but forgiveness is unfair. It's kind. It's more than we deserve. And it's accepted. The repentance of grace. 
David accepts that. Let's, um, let's move on to the last, uh, fourth and lastly then, the, the renewal of grace. The renewal of grace. Nathan drops off the scene at this point, although not completely. Uh, 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 David and Bathsheba, they lose a child, but uh, one of their later children, they call Nathan, so presumably they weren't angry with him for too long, or David certainly wasn't. So certainly, you, know, you, don't, you don't tend to call your children names of people you dislike or are irritated with. You tend to call your children names of people you've met before and like. And, you know, oh, yeah, he was a nice guy. I'll call my son a rhubarb or whatever it may be. Um, and, you know, you tend to do that. There's, um, David is clearly grateful eventually to Nathan. And you see why here in these verses, 15 to 31, there's a renewal that comes from grace. So verse 15, there's a change of scene. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. He became ill. But we'll see here that David has changed. There's three little elements that show that. First, then, his pleading, verses 15 to 17. As the child falls ill, what does David do? Verse 16, he pleads with God for the child. He fasts for days and nights. There's an intensity to his action here. He is begging. No food, nothing, not going without everything. He's just lying on the floor begging the Lord, please, can you be even more gracious and let this son live. Uh, the child dies. And everyone's a little scared to tell him. They think, gosh, what's he going to do? Commit suicide? Verse 19. But what does he do when he finds out? Verse 20. Well, he has a shower. He sprays on some aftershave. And he goes to worship. And after that, he tucks into some comfort food. Verse 21, the servants ask, well, hold on a minute, what's going on here? Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. Now the child is dead, you get up and eat. Verse 22, here's the explanation of David's behavior. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. So David, here's a man who understands Grace, not as a doctrine, not as just something in his head, but understands grace is the essence of God's character. He, he's able to plead, look, I, I don't deserve anything from you, Lord. I don't deserve to live myself. I don't deserve my son to live. But you are essentially a gracious God. Can you be even more kind, even more gracious to me? Maybe. It's extraordinary. David just asks for more. God has spoken. The Lord has spoken. Here is what will happen. But David says, yeah, but I know what you're like. I know your character. You can be so gracious, so generous. And he appeals. He understands David. David understands the Lord. God never turns around to us when we pray and says, come on, are you taking the mickey from me? Give him what you've done. You're coming before me and asking me for stuff. The Lord never says that. John Newton's, uh, one of his famous hymns, remember the line? Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. If you understand the sort of God that the Lord is, you can just keep asking things from him. 
He's very generous. You can't appeal beyond his grace. And David gets that in his pleading. See, he pleads, and then of course he does. He worships, verses 20 to 23, really. He's worshipping the Lord. The first thing he does upon the child's death is goes and praise the Lord, praises the Lord. No sulking. Oh, very easy for us, I mean, but quite common. Sometimes, some of us, will. there'll be an issue going on in life, and we do plead. There is something we long for, and daily, more than daily, several times that we plead, and we plead, and we, Lord, just, you know, we make silly deals in our head, please, we'll do this, but please, let us have this child, or this child live. We plead, and the answer is no. And, oh, that was a waste of time, wasn't it? What was, the way, what was the point of praying to you like that? David doesn't do that. He pleads with the Lord. The answer is no. He washes and then goes and praises him and says to the Lord, Lord, I will praise you for who you are, not for what you give me. See how David is completely changed. He pleads to God's grace. The answer is no. He worships despite not getting what he wants. He's a changed man. And last thing, the last way he's renewed, last thing, verses 24 to 31, there's blessing. Blessing upon David's life. So verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son. They named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah. What? Really? So that. So the, the child dies, and then, poof, just a, that didn't work, did it? Another one comes along straight away. I mean, Lord, couldn't you have given them a barren year at least, made them try a little bit, not made it quite so straightforward and easy for them? He's a man who's murdered, committed adultery. Okay, his child dies, but then he just gets another? Well, that's too easy. And who is the child that they have? Oh, it's Solomon, the wisest man in the world. <laughs> What's going on? The wisest man in the whole of the Bible, bar Jesus. What's this? You don't just give them another son. You give them Solomon? And in case they're in any doubt whether you're happy with them, you send Nathan back. Nathan, what's the, what, what, you got a nickname for our son? Yeah, why don't you call him Jedediah, loved by the Lord? Oh, okay, things are all okay again, are they? Yeah, pretty much. The Lord is, is blessing David, even despite his sin. Extraordinary. And then verses 26 to 31, you, here's the conclusion of the Ammonite War. I mean, if you were here last week, really, chapters 11 and 12, they bookend it. This is the war that's raging for a year. David should have gone to war. He doesn't. That's why he gets himself in such a mess. But what happens at the end? Joab the thug, he's a great general, but he's a thug. Joab says, look, I'm just about to commit, I'm just about to win, all right? But why don't you come and take all the credit for my victory? Oh, all right, says David, I'll do that. Brilliant. ta I'm the great general. Here, have a crown that weighs, the, the, like, I don't know, extraordinary amount. 34 kilograms. What that on your head, David? Brilliant. Hey, things seem to be going pretty well again. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Amazing. That's not all of the story. We'll see next week. Sin does have consequences, but there is blessing here for David, the other side of sin. There are consequences, yes, and more of that next time. But do you see, in David's family, there's blessing despite this great sin. In his work, there's blessing despite his great sin. 
There is blessing the other side of sin and there is work for God that God has for you to do. So here's the last thing. Some of you need to know, don't be paralyzed by your sin. You can serve God again after your sin, after your, what do you want to say in this case, in your sexual sin. You can serve God again after your sexual sin. You can enjoy rich times of worship again with the Lord, despite your sexual sin. You will be blessed again by the Lord, despite your sexual sin. So get up and get on with life. Get up and have another go. Get up like David did. Plead with the Lord. Worship the Lord. Serve him and expect him to bless you again, despite your sin, because he's a gracious God. Don't be paralyzed by your mistakes. He's a gracious God. Know his grace. Feel his grace. Be transformed by his grace. It is amazing, as we often will sing. It's amazing for the forgiveness. It's amazing for the transformation. You know, let me just give you these two verses. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but it reconciles, reconciles me to the Lord. And there's ongoing grace. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. It's transforming grace. Or in David's words, I don't know the order in which he wrote the Psalms, but Psalm 23, you know the final verse? Verse 6 of Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, the final verse. Surely, goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. God pursues his people with grace. He won't let you go. He'll change you. He pursues us with grace. Let's pray together. Father, this is an extraordinary account of your goodness to a man who fell. Thank you that that is your character. Your character is to be gracious. And we pray that we'd understand that rightly. We'd know there are consequences for sin, not get that confused with how you view us, love us, forgive us. But that we would embrace your grace and it would change us, renew us, so that we could uh, look forward to blessing from you, serving you, times of great fellowship with you. We would plead before you, knowing the sort of gracious God that you are. So, Father, please, would we indeed know, feel, be transformed by your loving grace to us in Jesus Christ. Amen.